Hi, it's Rabbi Jimmy Golf. I want to thank you so much for joining me this week. This, uh, I haven't been with you for a while, but this week we're going to go back to um, Parshat Vayetze, and we're going to take a little bit of a walk through the story of Jacob and Esau, and Jacob's sojourn uh, with his uncle Laban, and um, how that actually relates to well, some of the issues that we have in our world today, and um, how we might see them in the light of our Torah, and often see our Torah possibly well, repeating itself. Uh, I thank you for joining me. You can always email me at ravisonvictor, J-I-M, at AOL.com, or you can always call me at 610-624-3441. I'd love to hear from you. Shalom. So um, the famous cartoon Pogo had a um, its most famous line, which was, we have met the enemy and and he is us. Um, we're going to run into ourselves a bit in this Torah portion. But first, um, the Torah portion this week is about Jacob's flight from the land of Canaan. Uh, he's running for his life as his brother Esau has, shall we say, uh, taken umbrage at having the blessing of the firstborn stolen from him. And uh, Esau also kind of probably suspects that his mother, Rebecca colluded in the process. Jacob arrives at a certain place for the night, and he begins to dream. He has a vision of a ladder set in the earth, its top reaching to heaven, and God sits at the top. God reaffirms the covenant made to Abraham, and then Jacob proceeds on his journey to fall in love with Rachel, be cheated by Laban and Leah, work for 20 years to pay off his debt for the two wives, and he also manages to really make his uncle Laban angry in the process. At the end of the parsha, Jacob is on the lamb again, this time running from Laban. However, he's running back to the land where his brother Esau waits for him. In the whole episode, we get a weird moment as Jacob runs away from Laban, and Laban catches Jacob. And at first, he's angry with Jacob. You know, he's, it's like, what, you didn't even say goodbye. But then Laban wants to know, where are his idols? Where is his teraphim? Unknown to Jacob is that his wife, Rachel, took the household gods as she packed to leave her father's house. The reason behind this theft is somewhat suspect. The plain text in the Torah just tells us that Rachel took the idols and then hides them in a very clever way. See Genesis chapter 31, verse, uh, verse 35. The Midrash can't really accept that a matriarch, one of those who's included in some of our most important prayers and, and lessons, uh, would steal for no good reason. According to the Midrash, the rabbinic interpretation, Rachel stole the idols because she wanted to save her father from the idolatry he had practiced. Thus, this was no act of theft, but rather, Rachel actually was it was a great act of piety. Rachel saved Laban from the pagan he had always been, and thus she should be judged as a righteous daughter, rather than a thief. Well, the lesson I draw from this is that there are certain acts that depend on us believing that an intent exists. We don't get a clear reason why Rachel stole the idols. We just know that she did. 
Perhaps it was that she needed something from home, and these idols were the keepsakes that would remind her of her father's house. The JPS Torah commentary, edited by the late Nahum Sarna, Allah Shalom, suggests that Rachel's theft was poetic justice. Because of the acts of Laban, Rachel had to share her husband with her sister. Not only did Rachel have to compete with Leah, but Leah had more children, and she was able to pull away some of the love and affection due to Rachel. Thus, in taking the Teraphim, Rachel robbed Laban of what mattered most, just like Laban had manipulated Jacob and Rachel and used both of them to his advantage. This week we experienced moments of the absurd, um, and we, we, we might even look at them as being somewhat idolatrous. As many of you know, Iran's nuclear ambitions have concerned several in our country and abroad. Israel has a particular fear of Iran, as their president has threatened to destroy Israel on numerous occasions, and Israel was threatened with destruction by fire in the summer of 2008. Quote, Ali Shirazi, a cleric who is, is, who is the supreme leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei's representative to the guards, warned, quote, The first U.S. shot on Iran would set the United States' vital interests in the world on fire. Quote, Tel Aviv and the U.S. fleet in the Persian Gulf would be the targets that would be set on fire in Iran's crushing response. He added that the Zionist regime is pressuring the White House leaders to plan a military assault on Iran, and Tehran would react if, quote, they committed such a stupidity. This week, the stakes were raised in a more absurd way. It was reported that for the first time in the 108 years, um, that uh, it was the first time that somebody had stolen a Nobel Prize. And not just anybody. It wasn't like somebody broke into somebody's house and, you know, said, oh, gosh, one of those. No, no the, the culprit here um, is the Iranian government. Iranian human rights lawyer um, Shirin Abadi, I apologize for mispronouncing her name, says the Nobel Prize she won, Peace Prize she won, Peace Prize she won, in 2003 has gone, has been confiscated. The medal and accompanying diploma were taken from a bank box in Tehran about three weeks ago on the orders of Iran's revolutionary court, she said. Ms. Abadi, who has criticized Iran's recent disputed elections and subsequent treatment of protesters, said that her bank account was also frozen. Now, I know what the Iranian officials are thinking. You see, they're worried that Mrs. Abadi might begin to worship her Nobel Prize medal. Thus, in reality, they're just attempting to save her from committing idolatry. If you believe this, search the um, links on this podcast for the Egoff Luyanese in a swampland development. I got something to sell you. The lesson, I, but seriously, the lesson I draw away from the need to steal a Nobel Prize is that the Iranian regime is running scared and is increasingly uneasy with any appearance that it may not be totally in charge. After the elections last year, or the lack of elections last year, we have seen an increase in the extent to which that government will go to suppress their populace. This week, the first executions from the protests last, based on the protests last summer occurred. However, sadly, ironically, the person 
executed had little to do with protests. It was reported in the New York Times that the activist Esan Fatahin, 28, had been sentenced to death after he was accused of, quote, armed struggle against the regime. He was arrested more than a year ago in the Kurdish city of Kamyaran and received a 10-year prison term, but in an unusual move, an appeals court changed his sentence to death by hanging after the prosecutor general of the province demanded a tougher punishment against him. At least 13 other Kurdish activists are in prison on death row. The execution appeared to be part of efforts by the government to extinguish opposition in the wake of Iran's disputed presidential elections, which touched off waves of protest after President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad claimed an overwhelming victory. His opponents have accused him of rigging their results. So, um, between nuclear standoffs and stealing Nobel Prizes and killing people who were supposed to only serve 10 years, Tehran has had a busy week. It is interesting to watch a country turn not only on those outside of its borders, but even begin to attack its citizens in an attempt to tighten its grip. It should get all of us pause regarding how strong that grip might actually be and to what lengths Iran might be willing to go in order to ensure the appearance of being the sole regional power. While we could focus on Iran, we should, um, we should be worried about ourselves as well. Going back to Pogo, we have met the enemy and he is us. A few weeks ago, we saw some poetic injustice, or perhaps there may be more poetry than meets the eye. As, as many of you may or may not be aware, at the Western Wall in Jerusalem, there is the large open-air Orthodox synagogue, which you often see pictures of uh, uh, this divided line in the middle, men on one side, uh, with twice as much space as women on the right side, which only have about a third of the um, space towards the wall. Um, I've had a strange set of experiences at the wall in my life. In 1987, I and uh, another person on my year program went there for Kol Nidre. And, and 10 years later, I was there praying with a mixed minion behind the synagogue area because I didn't want to violate the synagogue part. And I had my first uh, rabbi football moment. You see, I'm, uh, I'm 6'3", and um, I, I could be a lineman. I could have been a lineman 10 years ago. And I and a few of the larger male rabbis were the uh, defensive front for any possible rush by the angry guys in black coats and hats who were screaming at us because we were praying in a mixed minion. Though I have to tell you that, ironically, it was when the female rabbis in our group began to speak in Hebrew to these men that they grabbed their hats and ran away shrieking. I'm, I'm still trying to figure that one out. This week, we saw another moment where the Orthodox establishment overreached. Um, and during the service, I invited up a, uh, a female volunteer I took out my talit, and I placed it on her. And what you need to know about this particular act in the middle of the sermon is that on November 18th, 2009, that act that we did in our synagogue caused the police at the Western Wall to arrest Nofrat Frankel, a fifth-year medical student. She was arrested for wearing a talit and holding a Torah scroll at the non-synagogue part of the Kotel apparently trying to show that it is not just Iranians who can do and say intelligence-challenged things. It was reported that the spiritual leader Sephardic of Sephardic Orthodoxy came out and said, quote, 
Rabbi Avadi Yosef came out on Saturday night against the feminist lineup at the Western Wall and called for the condemnation of its members. According to him, the movement is made up of, quote, stupid women who do not act for, quote, heaven's sake, but merely because they, quote, want equality. On this, he said to fill in phylacteries, she must, not, she must be careful not to lay. There are stupid women who come to the Western Wall, put on a talit parashah, and pray. According to Rabbi Yosef, these are deviants who serve equality and not heaven. They must be condemned and warned of. I think that uh, either Rabbi Yosef needs to figure out different adjectives or the translator needs to work on it a little bit there. But beyond that, um, the, the wonderful reaction to the rabbi's comments by Anat Hoffman, the leader of Women at the Wall, was to invite Rabbi Yosef to get to know the women of the Wall. Uh, to date, um, uh, they haven't set up any time to sit down and have tea yet. As I, as I reflect on these troubling events, a few things become obvious. The first is that governments often don't take extreme actions like these unless they are stressed. Iran's stress we can understand, and, and it should make us worry. It is not beyond the power structure there to lash out against others for their own sake. However, when it comes to Israel, it should make us wonder, what does the arrest of Nofrat Frankel at one of the most sacred places in the Jewish world do? Does it further Judaism? Not unless that Judaism is based solely on the control of Rabbi Yosef and Rabbi Rabinovich, the latter being the rabbi of the Western Wall. Does such an act make the rest of Israeli society or the Jewish world feel a connection with Judaism or Israel? When Rachel stole the Teraphim, we might think that these objects were just idols. That word, just, I don't like because it always is a word that is loaded with more than meets the eye, or it's a diminishment of incredible amounts of um, dedication, um, or chances are if somebody's saying it's just something to you, they're diminishing something that you hold to be of much more value. So we might think that these things were just idols. However, in the situations I shared with you tonight, I would have to say that they're connected to these terafim that Rachel stole. Um, they are akin to the expression of Laban, who desperately went through all the tents searching for the idols, the control of his world. All of this smacks a little bit of idolatry. When a country needs to steal, sanction state murder, and develop doomsday technologies in order to appear strong, is it really chasing strength? Or does it tip its hand? As opposed to being the actions of a mighty country, these are the reactions of despots. When a democratic country, as Israel claims to be, needs to have a woman arrested for wearing a tallit, I should actually rephrase that. When a country condones the power structure that allows these rabbis to have this type of absolute authority, something is not kosher. Each smacks of a little bit of idolatry. In every instance, someone is claiming an authority that trades on destroying another and or removing their rights. We've met the enemy, and he is us. My hope is that as we learn from the 
message of Rachel stealing the idols and Laban's desperate search for them. Interestingly, in our Torah portion, most of the time the enemy was at some level the person who seemed to be the oppressed. And in each of these situations, Iran and Israel both have choices that they can make. It's not the outside people that are causing things. It also has something to do with the inner makeup of each society. And unless they can realize that they just might be their own enemy, they may never grow to a place where they can actually make peace because they cannot find that peace within themselves. Shalom.